I want to share with you something the Lord's been laying on my heart. And to be frank with you, um, the Lord did not allow me to um, write anything down. And uh, he just gave me a chapter in the Bible. Now, before you panic, you're like, oh my goodness, chapter, how long are you going to talk today? Um, I promise I'm not going to be here all day. I may not even get through the whole chapter, uh, but uh, the Lord gave me this chapter in the Bible, uh, in the Gospels, actually. And I want to just start reading through this. And I want you to, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to join with me and read it with with me. Uh, I know a lot of us are watching today on a device or you have, uh, maybe you're watching on a, on a laptop or you're watching, uh, maybe you're on your television, your home, however you're watching. Uh, if you have the ability, I'm going to encourage you this morning to grab a Bible, even if you're brand new and this is your first time. Uh, there are free Bibles available. One of the easiest ones is if you have an Apple or Android phone, you can get the Version Bible. It's a very popular um, app. Uh, it is free, I believe. Still free. It was free when I got it. I don't know. Hopefully it's still free. Um, but if it's not free, it's probably 99 cents. But it's called the Version. It's awesome. It's really easy to navigate. It has got tons of different translations in it. And in case you don't know what a translation is, translation, the Bible was originally written in Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, but mostly Greek and Hebrew. And so I don't speak Greek. I don't speak Hebrew. Uh, so we need translations, which is bringing the Greek and Hebrew into English. Well, nowadays we're blessed because it's not just one translation, but there are multiple ones. Each one has a little bit of a different flavor and each one has a little bit of different wording. And it's really awesome. Because we live in a modern world, we use a lot of modern language and a lot of modern understanding of language. And so um, there are a lot of different translations out of there that bring a modern feel to it. And uh, so if you have a Bible, I'm encouraging you this morning uh, to join with me because I'm going to be reading quite a bit. And so in order to be able to help you and I stay on the same path today, I want you to grab a device, grab a Bible, even if you're brand new. Download that U version or some other version real quick. And I'm going to be using today because it's an easier version to understand and read uh, in this context. And I'm going to be using what's called the New Living Translation. It might be abbreviated by the NLT, which stands for New Living Translation. That's the translation I'm going to be reading out of this morning. Um, I just think it has an easier flow to it when I'm when we're reading in this setting. So um, I'm just going to encourage you to do that because we're going to be kind of working our way down for the next uh, few minutes through this, and I want you to be able to see and and read it for yourself and not just listening to me ramble on, uh, because the Word of God is where the power is. My Word is not in, uh, Paul said to the Corinthians, um, because in the Greek culture especially, and in Corinth even more so, uh, wisdom and intellectualism was held to the highest regards. In fact, um, I'm doing this to kind of give you a chance to find your translation. So uh, it's a little bit of history and biblical context, but also giving you time for those of you that would help me and find a Bible that you can join, join around. But in the Greek, the, the Corinthian culture, in the Greek culture, uh, intellectualism and wisdom was held to the highest regards. In fact, um, the entertainment for a dinner party, you'd have a dinner party at your house, and the entertainment is you would invite someone who had um, oratorical or rhetoric skills or someone who was a very well-spoken, persuasive speech giver. And that's what they would get down uh, by the time they would be done, and they'd be sitting there with a full belly. They'd sit back and lounge, and they would listen to someone talk. And usually they would talk about something that would be intellectually stimulating. And the more intellectually stimulating it is, the more in demand that the speaker would become. And there were people that literally, they made a living going around to different dinner parties in homes, giving these little intellectual talks. So when Paul comes to the Corinthians, he is telling them, I'm not coming to you with some little speech like you're used to. I'm not coming to you with an after dinner word. He said, I don't come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom, but I come to you with the demonstration of spirit and power of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we read through this, we're not simply going through an intellectual exercise. Um, I, some of the most brilliant 
uh, uh, studiers of the Bible that I know of are intellectual people that teach at some of the most prestigious universities in our country and are part of religious studies. And I'm not not being um, rude to them at all or being judgmental, but they are intellectually brilliant, but spiritually they are completely ignorant. Um, so they're intellectually brilliant, but spiritually ignorant because the Bible alone if you just read it on an intellectual basis, is just another book. But when you sit down and you read the Bible with the author of the book, because the Bible says in John chapter uh, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later, a little farther down in that same um, book, John chapter 1, uh, the Bible says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who was the Word became flesh? That's Jesus Christ. So you have Jesus Christ and the Word are one in the same. And the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God was the Word, the Word was Jesus. So if A equals B and B equals C, follow what I'm saying here for a moment. I have no idea why I'm telling somebody this, but we're just taking a moment here. If A equals B and B equals C, so if God was the Word and the Word was made flesh and that flesh was called Jesus, so then by the same principle, if A equals B, then B equals C. So God is the Word, the Word is Jesus, so God is Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Jesus was not just another man. He was not just his teacher. He was not just somebody who was just uh, a follower, someone to follow, but he was God robed in flesh. And the vehicle by which that happened was through the word. So when we read the word of God, like we're going to do for a few minutes today, if we're simply reading words off of an app or uh, if you've got an actual hard copy of the Bible, um, you're one of the few left that's holding on to the old hard copies of the Bible, um, whatever you read, you're not just reading words. You're reading the true essence of who God is. You're reading God's God himself, not his word, but you're reading God himself. So if it's just simply reading words, it's an intellectual exercise and it's no big deal. Well, you know, there's the words. You're not reading a story. You're reading God's word. And if you would sit down with the author who is God himself and you have the author in you because you've received him in your life, and you've received a spirit is even greater because then they're no longer words, but God, the Bible says that the Bible brings life. It's life. It actually brings life into us. So when we read the word, we actually are not just ingesting word, but we're ingesting life into us. So I said all that today because we're going to read today. You're like, oh my goodness, why don't I get on here today to hear you read the Bible? I could have done that on my own. Well, um, we're not just reading the Bible for the sake of reading your Bible. Uh, I'm not James Earl Jones, uh, Bible on CD here today, uh, where I'm just going to read the Bible and that's all we're going to be. But the Bible, my words are just the words of a man. I honestly don't, if you're new here, and uh, I hope you realize that I don't just come on here to talk. Um, this has been the, one of the most challenging six months of my life, almost seven months now, having to stare at this camera every Sunday without being able to see all of your wonderful faces. Um, so it's been very challenging. So if I just come on here to talk for the sake of talking, I'm wasting your time. I'm wasting my time. I'm just of no avail. So when I come on here today, it's not desiring to talk, but it's desiring to bring God's word to you. Not my word, but God's word. And just let him speak to us today. And sometimes the best way to do that is to let his word that's already written speak to us. So we're going to do that today. So Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, we're going to read, begin reading it. Verse number one, and I don't know if we're going to get to the end or not. We're going to see where the Lord will take us today on this little journey he has us going on today. And if you're brand new today, I believe if you're brand new for the first time and you're watching us for the very first time, or you've watched us every Sunday I know how Jesus operates, and I guarantee you every one of us is going to get something out of today. So let's do it. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse number 1. Follow along with me if you've downloaded an app or you have the app. or are reading out of the New Living Translation. It says this. About, the same, about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested. Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scripture what David did 
When he and his companions were hungry, he went into the house of God and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one who is even greater than the temple. But you have, but you would have not condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I want to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man who was with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? And it gives us a little bit of an understanding of what they were trying to do. It says they were hoping he would say yes so he could, so they could bring charges against him. Constantly there was this back and forth where they were trying to lay traps for Jesus and every time he knew what was going to happen. And he answered, verse number 11, he answered, If you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. This is absolutely an insane, when you think about it, this is just crazy, back and forth that's going on in this little, these first uh, 13 verses between uh, Jesus and this group called the Pharisees. Now, I've said this before, but let's offer a little bit of context again for some of you that have never heard me talk about this before to add a little bit of context. Now, we say the word Pharisee, you're like, what's a Pharisee? Pharisees were the leading re- uh, religious leaders of the day in Jesus' time. They were the ones that really held the seat of power. They were sort of the religious force of that day. And so uh, because of their sort of attitude and kind of the the opportunity that Jesus was going, uh, Jesus usually went toe-to-toe with them, uh, the word Pharisee has been used nowadays as sort of a condescending word or a condescending tone to it. Uh, you know, you're, a, you, you're very Pharisaical or you, you're acting like a Pharisee. And it's sort of become a, come, be, to become uh, uh, synonymous with the attitude and the, the, the way uh, that we find them acting um, in the uh, Gospels. The Pharisees were always sort of the people that were always kind of accusing Jesus, and we find it here. Uh, but we have to a little bit understand the mindset of a Pharisee, because if we understand the mindset of a Pharisee, we can get a little deeper into understanding a little bit why they were so dogmatic. Uh, because the attitude is, well, they were sort of, they were the ultimate hypocrites, right? They were the ultimate uh, 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 judges. They judged everybody. They were always, they had their nose up in the air with everybody. They were judging everybody. They were just, and, and that's sort of the attitude that most people get. And if you read the Bible and you read Genesis, I mean, you read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get this sort of attitude and uh, and, and and imagery of these sort of uh, just kind of haughty, uh, men that walked around with their noses so high uh, that they couldn't see their feet because they were so uh, stuck up. And there is part of that. But if we back up a little bit and uh, to notice that there was a 400-year period between, um, there was a period of time when the Jews returned out of captivity, uh, to, there was a 400-year period uh, of silence. And uh, God did not speak to Israel, uh, to his people for 400 years. It was a 400 year period of silence until finally Jesus Christ arrives on the scene as God robed in flesh. So uh, you got to realize, realize that when Jesus came on the scene, it was, it was, it was at the end of this 400, 400. Think about that. The United States, uh, was founded in 1776 uh, about 250 years ago. So imagine for since the beginning of this country, um, and then tack on another 150 years to that, um, or just to the time that, um, um, the, 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 um, the, the first establishments of, uh, colonization started in this country back in the early 1600s. Just imagine from that period up until now, there had been nothing. God had not spoken one thing. 
what, what kind of attitude or mentality we, 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 would we have today as believers if the only single piece of God speaking and evidence we had of who God was was in this book? Now, the temple was still happening, and there was stuff happening in the temple, but the essence of who God is, his spoken word by his prophets and his uh, uh, and by uh, men and women that he had sent to speak his word, had ceased. So this was a 400-year block of silence. My goodness, if God hasn't spoken to me in four days, I'm in a panic. There's been times where I have felt like heaven has... Um, been sealed with a concrete ceiling and I have literally felt like if my prayers were bouncing back off the ceiling and uh, that's a horrible feeling if you've ever had that experience and imagine that feeling for 400 years what kind of mentality must they have had at that period of time so anyways because of that, three different groups started to arise. Three different groups started to try to come to the forefront and uh, take on power. Uh, one was called uh, the Pharisees. Um, and the Pharisees, uh, one was sort of, uh, one believed uh, that uh, they could restore the kingdom of God. So basically, the attitude was, well, God's mad at us. Uh, God has rejected us, so we have to find a way to restore the kingdom. It was lost because of the idolatry and the decisions of our forefathers. So, and I'm, very, I'm simplifying this extremely to the depth. There's a lot more depth to this. So some of you that know the story, you're probably going, that's not the whole case. I get it. I'm trying to simplify it for time's sake. But basically, there became three groups. There was one group that believed they could um, do it through uh, revolt. Um, there was another group that believed that uh, when Messiah came, that uh, they, he would restore the kingdom. So you hear the term when Messiah comes, Messiah comes, Messiah comes. That's why, if you notice, the disciples were a little bit in this group because they believed when Messiah came, he would restore the kingdom. And he said, you know, there's this back and forth, even with his own disciples, his own followers, the 12 that followed him the closely, that was like, okay, you know, when the kingdom comes, it kind of, and, and one of the mothers of the disciples said, hey, you know, Jesus, uh, which boy is going to be on your right hand? Which, you know, there's this jockeying for position because they literally thought that Jesus wasn't coming to uh, just bring the spiritual kingdom. They honestly believed that Jesus was coming to establish the natural kingdom. So there was even this jockeying amongst the disciples to be a part of this group. So there was that group that be believed that Messiah would restore, sort of coming on the white horse with the army to conquer the Romans and to eradicate the Romans out of, uh, out of Israel so that he could establish again that this is God's people and this is God's promised land. Um, instead of coming on a horse, he came on a donkey. Instead of coming with a shining armor, he came in as a babe uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes. So you can understand here a little bit of why they never. some people struggle to see that this was really Messiah because they were expecting him to come as the conquering hero and he came as the babe swaddled clothes. They came expecting him to ride on a horse. He came and rode on a donkey. They came they came expecting him to uh, to um, to uh, save them, and he came to die for them. So you see the back and forth here that kind of brought confusion to some that even after all that Jesus did, they still couldn't see the fact that he really was uh, truly the Messiah. So you had that group. You had the other group that believed that there would be a re that we could revolt, we could bring about a revolution that would bring. Um, that would bring down all of these kind of uh, the, the, the oppressors, the Romans, and, and, and restore. So we're going to rise up. You had the Maccabean revolt, and you had, even during the time of Jesus, you had several revolts that uh, the Romans talk about. Uh, even a Roman history teaches us that in Judea, uh, in that area, there were some revolts that uh, took place. And um, if you know anything about Roman history, uh, the Romans did not take kindly to people trying to uh, um, revolt against them, and they brutally came down on some of these revolts that uh, were even in Jesus' childhood. And then you had the third group, and I'm trying to skip ahead here for time, but you had the third group, which was really the Pharisees were the leader of this group, that believe if we can do everything right, if we can serve God to the perfect exactitude of every single thing, that we, we, we by our true perfection will bring God's favor and bring his kingdom back. So in fact, the Pharisees not only took what the Bible said, but then they added some, I think it's 600, I think, I can't remember. The, there's a there's a total there. But they added a whole list of additional things to do. So not only did they want to do what the Bible said, but they wanted to make sure they didn't even come close to messing it up. So they added all of these extra. And so this was the attitude, right? They, they didn't like Jesus because he's messing up their plan. He's teaching this entirely different 
idea and theology and philosophy that some of the stuff that they held so sacred that they were doing, they were holding on to, Jesus was messing it up. And, and, and they are trying desperately to hold the seat of power. And so here's Jesus with the disciples. They're walking through the, the, the grain field during, the, during harvest time. They reach down. They're hungry. They pick up some grain. They start eating it. And they flip out. What are you doing? How can you let the, your disciples eat on the Sabbath? How can you do this? And Jesus, man, he knew how to, he knew the, the right things to go to. He knew it. And he said to them, he said, hey, look, here's the problem. Are you seriously, you're missing something here because the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Pharisees are like, look, you're, le- you're letting your disciples break the law. You're, they're breaking law. And Jesus said, didn't David uh, allow him and his companions to go into the temple, to go into uh, the house of God uh, and eat the sacred bread? Aren't even the priests allowed to do it? And then he says something that just kind of, it wasn't the point, but it became the point. If you understand, Jesus was, Jesus was never about just the point. He was always trying to get to the bigger point. And he made this astounding, astounding statement. He goes to them, he says, do you not even remember that David and his companions went into the, went into the, to the, to the, um, the temple or to the house of God and ate the sacred bread? And isn't it allowed that even the priest, even the priest, are on duty in the temple, are allowed to work on the Sabbath. And then he says this, he says, I'm telling you this, there's one that is greater than the temple. Now, when we hear that, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we hear the word, he's greater than the temple, and we go, woo, yes, Jesus is greater than the temple. Yes, oh, that's awesome. Woo, praise God, Jesus is greater than the temple. But I want you to get the essence of what he was saying here. Because when he says Jesus is greater than the temple, he probably would have done less damage if he would have just walked up to them and slapped them in the face. It probably would have stung less if he would have just walked up to them and smacked them right in the face. Because when he says there's one here that is greater than the temple, that had to have been one of those... You know, if they were modern, the Pharisees were in modern, it would have been one of those, oh, no, he didn't. Oh, I did, did he? No, did he just, did that guy just say that he is greater? The Bible doesn't say this, but I'm telling you, this is what happened. I'm giving you the other version. This is not the New Living Translation. It's the Joel Wright Translation. And in my translation, I'm telling you all the things that happened when Jesus made that statement. Because Jesus said, there's one here that's greater than temple. They went, are you kidding me? Did he just, did that dude just say what I thought he said? Forgive me for a second, but did he just say he is greater than the temple? Nicodemus, did he just say that? Did he, did, did the dude just say that he was greater than the temple? That our fathers built this magnificent house of God. And that dude's trying to tell me right now, he's sitting there. And where did you come from, by the way? Nazareth? Is this Nazarene? This dude from the hill country. He is really trying to tell me he's greater than the temple. And weren't you, an, if I remember correctly, didn't I hear somewhere you were illegitimate? I know your mom made a, that that's crazy story about uh, about you know some angel. I know we've all we all heard that story before, right? Ooh, some angel came down from heaven and told her she was going to have a child. But we know what happened. Come on, we know. Come on, we know how it works. We had the story of the birds and the bees. Our mama told us how these things work. We know how it works. Don't be telling us some angel came down and told my mother, and you know all that stuff. We know what we know who you are, and then you have the audacity to tell us that you're greater than the temple. Are you serious? Are you out of your mind? And then he comes back again, so he hits them with with the with the ultimate jab. I mean, like boom, right? I'm you know, there's one here, the greater temple. And then Jesus had him staggering, and then Jesus just dropped it with the Mike Tyson uppercut because he said, "Let me tell you something, this." If you knew the meaning of the scripture, oh my goodness, you, I know, I know we live in a modern world and we don't get some of this stuff, but you've got to realize how insulting this must have sounded. You've got to realize how insulting this must have been. You've got to realize how insulting these statements were and how blasphemous. 
uh, uh, how much blasphemy this must have sounded like to these men sitting there that day. First of all, they just were trying to accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law. So they were already on the, on the side of the law. We're at the law on our side. And then Jesus has the audacity to compare his disciples, these fishermen, this, ugh, this tax collector guy, these, geez, these, these outcasts. They didn't study in the great intellectual centers of Jerusalem. These guys came from the hill of Galilee. And then the ones he did find that weren't in Galilee were the trash of society, the tax collector, the no good people. And then this guy has the audacity to tell or compare those guys to King David. And then he didn't stop there. Then he tried to talk about the priest and the temple and said he's greater than the temple. And then Jesus just smacked them again. I mean, he, he couldn't have insulted them more if he would have called them the boogeyman. He says to them in verse number 7, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I know that seems like a little bit, a little saying, and we move on to that. You have no idea how that must have sounded to those guys. I mean, you want to talk about a slap in the face. Because really what he was saying, the Pharisees, they prided themselves on knowing the scripture. If anybody knew the scripture, it's us Pharisees. We've studied it our entire lives. We are the keepers of the law. We know the Torah. We know uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We know the first five books of the Bible. They are a part of us. We have written them. We have, we have absolutely, I mean, they have memorized almost the entirety of the first five books. And on top of that, they know every other scripture. And he has the audacity to tell them if you knew the meaning of the scripture. How dare he? Because Jesus then goes back and quotes from the, quotes to them a verse out of Hosea chapter 6, verse number 6. And he says this, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Are you baboo? What has just happened? Jesus just dropped Hiroshima and Nagasaki in one statement and has absolutely blown their entire world to kingdom come and then when it's all said and done he even drops another one that had to by this time they had to have been they had to be almost just enraged foaming at the mouth with anger because he says oh by the way there's one here greater than the temple number two you don't even know what the bible says because you guys are so intellectually stimulated you don't even understand the meaning because the word says in hosea 6 and 6 i want mercy not sacrifice and oh by the way while we're at it let me just tell you this the son of man uh, uh that would be me is the lord of the sabbath whoa I mean, that is like one, two, three strikes you're out at the old ball game. I mean, you cannot be more in just inferior. And then if that wasn't enough, he does that. And then he, the Bible says the very next verse, he goes over to the synagogue and walks into the synagogue. So he's now just insulted them to beyond. I mean, they had to have been boiling mad by this point. He has now equated himself with David. He's now said he is greater than the than our most prized national treasure and our 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 vehicle to God, the temple. He has now insulted us by saying we don't even know what the scripture means and then on top of that he has the audacity to take the holy sabbath and say that he's the lord of that day this Gal this galilean nazarite this this fisherman savior has the audacity to say that and then on top of that when he was all said and done he goes over to the synagogue and to understand what a synagogue was, because we hear about synagogue today, we may not understand that the, 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 the essence of a synagogue. In a lot of ways, the synagogue became a place of community. It was a place where you came to worship, you came to prayer. But it's also a place where you came to study and talk about and study the law. To study the law. To study the Torah. It was a place of really, after a while, it became an intellectual center more than a place of worship. Because you still had the temple. You still had the place where you went and offered sacrifices. But the synagogue became the real essence of how you really began to understand 
who things were. So here's the problem. The synagogue, instead of being a place that brought you closer to God, a synagogue really started becoming more of the place where intellectualism was was cherished more than understanding who God was. Because don't forget, it was Jesus at 12 years old that goes in a synagogue for three days and astounds, astounds the scribes and Pharisees with his knowledge. They were amazed with his knowledge. How can this? They, it wasn't about his power. It wasn't about who he was. It, it was about this guy is brilliant. Never heard anybody more brilliant than this. So the synagogues, in some ways, if you go throughout the history of them, they were built with a true, uh, pure purpose. Because there were some things in the Jewish, uh, in the, in, in Judaism where some prayers were supposed to be prayed with more than by yourself. There were some prayers that required, I forgot the name of them in, in Hebrew, uh, but there are some prayers that required there to be at least 10 adults at present for the prayers, uh, to be prayed. Ten men had to be present for these prayers. Uh, I don't even, I, I've got them here in my notes. Uh, minion. I, and that's M I N in the, in the present. You had to have prayers that can only pray in the presence of a minion, not the minions from, um, uh, uh, not Gru's companions from, um, uh, what's that, uh, kid movie, uh, uh, whatever that is, but not those little, uh, Yellow guys, not the minions, but a minion, M-I-N-Y-N. And I guarantee you that's a butchering on the pronunciation. So it was, there's some pureness to it. So, but Jesus walks into this place and, and, and the first thing he calls out was the man with the withered hand. Now there's this whole entire thing that's happening here to bring us to something. And that's the point. I'm not trying to get into rehash and be just today be a biblical commentary. I want you to see really what's really going on here and what Jesus is trying to get us all to see. Because there's something truly deep here that Jesus is trying to get us to see in all of this. Number one, he says, I'm greater than the temple. What did the temple represent? The temple represented ceremonial sacrifices. The temple was was carrying out the ceremonial obligations. When you went to the temple, you would go and you would wash and you would offer sacrifices. There were very specific times in the year where you would go to the temple and you would bring a sacrifice, an offering to the temple, and that would be your way for your uh, for your sins to be forgiven. There was multiple things you had to do throughout the year that was regarding around the temple. It was the temple that became the vehicle the essence with God. We see that now even in other religions. Um, I was reading a story recently and um, the I've had the experience of this that uh, uh, I've seen this with my own two eyes, and that is when the when 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 the Muslim conquerors would go into a especially a Christian nation um, and they would uh, conquer it. The first thing that they would do would either they would either take over the largest facility in the uh, Christian uh, city, uh, whatever it would be, was was a, a large church, whatever it is, and they would immediately convert it into a mosque. Or if they didn't have the ability to do that, they would build a mosque right next to it. And if you go now to Istanbul, Turkey, you can see this firsthand because there is a beautiful, magnificent, awe-inspiring building called the Hagia Sophia, which was built um, by Justinian, um, I think it was around the 5th century, that was built to be a church. And um, in fact, it actually has um, pieces that were brought to by Ephesus. It's a beautiful and magnificent structure. It's been around for so long. And uh, when the Muslims conquered Istanbul, the Ottoman Empire conquered Istanbul, they took the Christian church and turned it to a mosque. And to double down on that, they actually built a um, uh, another massive uh, structure right next to it called the Blue Mosque. And so you have these two buildings that are now, because in the Muslim um in the Muslim uh, world, the mosque is the, it represents sort of what the temple represented back then. It's the place where you come, you offer prayers. It's the place of where you come in the vehicle to commune with God. Um, even to the point now, uh, I read this the other day. I don't know if it was old news or new news, but they've even tried to build a mosque down in the area of the World Trade Center. So it's sort of the interesting, not to get into that today, the political side of that. But what's interesting about this is that uh, uh, I, I, I heard a story the other day, I read a story actually by a man who was visiting a very famous mosque in Casablanca, uh, Morocco. And uh, he was on 
a tour of this mosque. And uh, what he noticed was that when he went into this mosque, there was two rows of fountains, uh, two rows uh, of fountains. And he asked the, the tour guide, he says, uh, excuse me, are, are, are the fountains there for men and women? He goes, oh, no, no, women are not allowed to wash uh, at these fountains. The, the fountains are for both the elderly and the young. He said, because if we only had one set of fountains, the young would overpower the elderly and the elderly wouldn't even be able to come and wash. And the man that was writing the story said he was just absolutely puzzled how in coming to serve God and to bring a bring yourself to commune with God, they didn't even have the decency to prefer their brother that if there wasn't an avenue by which they could be separated, um, that the men wouldn't even stop to make sure that everybody had an opportunity. And then when they were leaving, they went by the restrooms and uh, they were, and one of the people in the tour group asked the guide, he said, um, would, um, would, uh, is this, do both men and women use the restrooms here? And he said, oh, no, we would never allow women. He said, uh, why, why is that? He said, because if we allow the women to use the restrooms in the vicinity of the men uh, here, that uh, women would be, um, would be assaulted. And I'll use that terminology, even though there's other terms, but I know there may be young years watching today, so I'll make sure that I don't use the correct term. They would be assaulted. And uh, I'm not talking, and, and adults understand what that means. They would be assaulted if we allowed the men and women to congregate together. And this man writing the story, who was a Christian man, he was astounded by that. How in the world can this place, who's so sacred and set apart for God, they can't even let men and women use the restroom side by side because the men would assault the women? What's amazing to me about this thing, and I use that because... The, the whole essence of the back and forth here is the fact that these men had become used to going to the temple and doing their ritual. They've been going to the temple and had been checking off the boxes. And it's right here in scripture. You can see it where Jesus is basically saying, hey, you know, I know you know what you're doing. I know you understand, you're, you, you're, you know the boxes to check, you get all that, you got that down. But you don't even realize what you're doing, you've forgotten the essence of that because you have put the, the, the performance of some things greater than what they were meant for. You've taken the purity of something because really he was saying, I'm greater than the temple and here's why. Because number one, the temple's a place but I'm a person. Number two, the temple has authority, a special authority and a hierarchy. There were certain things you couldn't do in the temple unless you were a part of a certain tribe or you had certain privileges. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't even get in the temple. There was courts you couldn't even get into. If you were a normal person, you couldn't even enter into the center parts of the temple. There was restrictions. So Jesus said, the temple's got restrictions. The temple has exclusivity. But I... I am equal access to everybody. I, I want everybody to have equal access. Number one, the temple is, is a place drowned in ceremony in order to receive intimacy. A temple is a place where there's ceremony to bring intimacy. But I am here to bring relationship through intimacy. I'm here to provide something that transcends ceremony. You've had your ceremonies now for a long time, and the ceremony has brought you into a place where you can have have a place of communion, a place to attain intimacy. But I'm now moving to a place where it goes beyond the walls of a temple, going beyond the walls of ceremony. I have something that's greater than ceremony. Can I tell you something today? Forgive me for saying this, but somebody needs to hear what I'm saying. I'm not here today, or I'm not speaking of 
God, and I'm not talking to you today about Jesus because I'm trying to get you to re, to bring a ceremony into your life. Go to church, do this, worship this way, do this, don't do that. I'm not saying that you need to get involved in ceremony. I'm saying today that Jesus is standing before you because he sees where you at. He sees your life. He sees the brokenness. He sees the hurt. He sees the pain. He sees the disappointment. He sees the dark nights. He sees the tears that are staining the pillow. And he's not here to bring you ceremony, but he's here to bring you himself. He's not someone that relies on exclusivity. He's not here someone that only allows the certain and the select few. He's not a white God, a black God, a green God, a red God, an American God, a European God, an Asian God. He's not a, a, a an African God. He's a God for everybody. He's a Lord for everybody. All are able to come into his house. All are able to come. His original temple was only for certain people, but his new house, the house that he built, he said, you tear down this temple in three days, but it's going to be resurrected because the new house is for everybody. It's for every. It's for the rich. It's for the poor. It's for the sick. It's for the healthy. It's for the educated. It's for the non-educated. It's for the literate and the illiterate. It's for the, the red, the yellow, the black, the white. It doesn't matter who you are. My house is for everybody. We're not exclusive, but we're inclusive. Wherever you are today, whoever you are, there's a place in God's body for you. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you come. There's a place in the body of Christ for you. And Jesus was saying, the problem is, Here's the issue. You're still living with the understanding of what that temple, that you're missing the essence of what this temple, because that temple limited access, but I try to bring a kingdom and a temple for all to access. He said, in a temple, you go to a place, but this temple comes to you. Woo! Aren't you so thankful today? I'm sorry for a moment. I'm, 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 I'm just going to have a little moment with myself, if you don't mind, and you can just kind of follow along. But I'm so thankful today that we don't have to go to God, but He comes to us. We don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore and find our way to the temple to offer sacrifices. But all we have to do right now is lift up our hands wherever we are and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you in my life. Jesus, I need you right now. Would you make your yourself known. And he doesn't say, get up, go to the temple. He says, I'm coming to you. I'm coming where you are. You can be in your home. You can be in your car. You can be out on the park bench today, wherever you might be right now. If you call his name, he said, at the mention of my name, I'd be there. When he said, it's greater than the temple, he said, you got to go to the temple. But hey, hello, if you notice something here, fellas, I brought the temple to you because it's greater than the temple. The temple can't move. You can't move a temple. It's too big. But I'm coming because I am the temple. I'm coming to you. He said the temple's made of stone and mortar, but the new temple is coming to live in you. You know what? You can lie to a building. You can live the life you want and do what you want to a building. But you can't lie and live the way you are to a person. Truly, Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, you know what? When you get into ritual and ceremony, you miss the essence. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you got to get this idea of the temple thing. You're missing the whole point, fellas. You're so worried about the temple that you're missing something. And let me show you something. I'll go back to what was said on your book that you said you've read. You don't even understand the meaning of it. I want mercy, not sacrifice. Don't get caught up so much in giving God what you think you want, what he wants, that you miss the essence of what he really wants. Two men brought offerings to God. The first two offerings we find in scripture given were brought by two brothers, Cain and Abel. And the Bible says that God rejected one and received the other. And why did he do that? He did it because of this. That Cain brought God what Cain wanted to give God. And Abel brought God something that he knew God wanted. Cain brought God something that I think God will want this. This is mine. I want to give God this. But Cain... Abel brought to God what he knew God wanted. 
mercy, not sacrifice. And to think that these men had become so blinded to the mentality of their day and become so blind to the age that there was a man sitting in the synagogue that day. He wasn't outside the synagogue. Go read it. Jesus went over to their synagogue and he noticed a man with a deformed hand. He was at the synagogue. Whether he was inside, he was right near. The, he was either at, at inside or right at the door, wherever it was. But he was, he was associated, his position was associated in proximity or either in the synagogue. And he's sitting there with a withered hand and he, Jesus looks at them and says, uh, looks at them and they ask the question, does the law permit healing on the Sabbath? That is absolutely astounding to me that they would even ask that question. Wouldn't it, would it matter what the law said or does it matter that this man is here and he's in need and the need is greater than the law because the need says this man is hurting and needs healing. It doesn't matter what the law said. The response should be Jesus. I know it's the synagogue. I know it's the law that says we're not supposed to do things on the Sabbath, but can you make an exception because this man needs healing? But they went the opposite. And Jesus gave such a beautiful, he said, if, a, if one of your sheep fell into a well on the Sabbath, would you leave it there? No, you would rescue it. And he t- held out, he said, hold out your hand. And he healed. That's so sad today that the church world has become so bent on ceremony and so bent on religious practice that we've neglected to see the needs that are around. We've neglected to see the, the needs that are before us. Now, I'm not saying or trying to imply today that it's a free-for-all, do what you want, say what you want, go where you want. God just wants mercy, not sacrifice. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, 1, to present yourself, your body, a living sacrifice. So there is essence to that. But the problem is, is that it means I can do everything right but miss the true essence of what I'm doing. You've heard me tell this story again, but be allowed to share it again because it's such a beautiful story. So please, I know there are people on here today that haven't. So if you heard this, forgive me for using it again. But there was a carrot farmer. And he had worked very hard that year in particular to grow the most health, the healthiest and most robust carrots he could. And at time of harvest came, he pulled one particular carrot out of the ground And this carrot was exceptionally large and exceptionally healthy. And when he discovered this carrot, he decided that he would go to the palace and share it with the king. And so he took his prized carrot and he approached the palace and he asked for an audience with the king. And when he was brought before the king, he unwrapped the carrot and he placed it in front of the king and he said oh great king you have blessed my family and I and you have allowed us to live in your kingdom and you have given us the ability to have land and we have used that land and we have worked that land and we have plowed and we have planted and we have grown an abundant harvest but this particular prized carrot this is the greatest carrot we've ever had and ever grown and I have chosen today to come and I would like to give this to you great king in honor of who you are and honor the fact that you've allowed us and the king took the carrot and he looked down at the man and he said sir because of your generosity and because of your heart and because of the fact you have given me such a beautiful and wonderful gift that has come from you and your family I in return want to give you something He said, I have several parcels of land that are adjacent to your your, uh, um, farm. I'd like to give you that land. I want you and your family to have that land. You can own it. It's yours. I will give it to you. You will hold the deed as my gift to you because I want you to have it. And I want that land to be used by you and your family because of your generosity. And I know if I give you this land that you will do good with it. And you will not just take it for your own advancement 
While he was doing all this, there was a noble man that was a man of high standard, high regard, that was standing over in the corner that day watching all of this and saw the exchange that took place between the king and the carrot farmer, and he got an idea. He said, I, I, I know how this works. So the very next day, he comes in and he said, can I have an audience with the king? And they said, sure. And he brought forth the king. He said, oh, great king. Oh, great leader of our kingdom. I have brought you a gift today. And he he summoned for his servants to bring in his pro, his, a, 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 a great stallion. The stallion came in strong, beautiful, mighty, muscular, a prize stock, just a beautiful, beautiful horse. And he said, oh, great king, I would like to give you this as a gift to you today. And the king took it, didn't say anything, didn't respond back at all. After a few moments of awkward silence, finally the, the, the nobleman kind of stood there in, in, in disbelief. And finally he couldn't withhold his frustration any longer. And he said, oh king, what, what, what is the problem with my gift? And the king said, I'm sorry, what, what do you mean? And he said, oh king, he said, I was standing here yesterday and that guy brought you a measly carrot. That little carrot. And, you, and he gave you that carrot that he pulled out of the ground. And in return for his carrot, you gave him land for his family? And, and I brought you a stallion. This stallion is worth 500 carrots. And I brought you this stallion. And that you don't even say anything. You, you give me nothing back. And the king said, well, I'm sorry. I'll thank you for this then. And he said, that's all I get is a thank you? He got land and I get a thank you? He got a carrot and gets land? I bring you a stallion and get a thank you? This is what, what is going on? And the king said, let me tell you the trueness of what's going on. He said, the problem is this, that he gave the carrot to me, but you have given the stallion to yourself. He gave the carrot to me but you're really giving the stallion to yourself. You see, Jesus stood by one day and watched people come and give an offering to the temple. And as they watched, there was a very unassuming lady that comes up, a widow lady. She drops in just one small might, for comparison's sake today, a penny, just one penny. And this was sandwiched between uh, people bringing large offerings of, of great wealth and great money. And, and as people watched her come and drop her little penny, they almost scoffed at that, joked at that. Oh, what measly offering this is. What measly offering She's giving. We gave all of this abundance. She's giving a penny. Of course, all that matters is how much you give. And of course, she gave a penny. I mean, how would you like, let's just bring it down for a moment. I'm almost done. How would you like to stand there today and you watch yourself pull out five crisp I mean the crisp ones. I mean the kind that are just, they're so crisp, they feel like they're fake. Five crisp $100 bills. I mean the ones with the Benjamin Franklin, the big face Benjamin Franklin. I mean the just brand new, the kind you could smell it. it smells like money. And you walk up and you just lay 500 big ones down at Jesus' feet. One, two, three, four, five, five crisp $100 bills. And then you see somebody come up and drop a penny down. I know we all are so noble and so spiritual that we would not be bothered by that, but I have another take on it. We're not that spiritual and we're not that mobile because it would cross, whether or not it ever, it, it never said anything, 90% of it would cross our mind and go, <laughs> oh, I gave 500 she gave a penny. <laughs> Boy, I am so much, I mean, come on. I mean, I know God. He loves everybody, but, you know, I mean, come on. When push comes to shove, 
I know who's going to get the blessing today. I know who's going to get it. <laughs> a penny? I got five, five hundred dollar bills. Five, one hundred. I, I mean, come on. Pour it on me, Jesus. Give me abundance. So Jesus watched this exchange and he turns to the group there that day and he says, who gave them more? Who gave more? And of course, they answered what we would probably have answered that day. You know, we all know, a lot of you know the punchline. So you're giving me the answer that you think you're supposed to have. But let's get to the real true answer. Because we would have given the same answer they gave. He goes, of course, of course God, the one who gave all, more. He said, nope, wrong. You got it wrong again, fellas. You need to go read the scripture. You're missing it. He said, who gave more? She did. And I can't imagine that day they went, what? Hold on a second. You really think she, did you not see what she did? She gave a penny. Really? And he said, you know what? Everybody that came gave out of convenience, but she gave all she had. Can I tell you somebody today, I'm telling you this and the Holy Ghost for somebody. God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants mercy. What I mean by that, today, for some of you, he's not looking for your $500 crisp bills of perfection. He's not looking for your $500 crisp bills of ceremony. He wants your penny of praise. He wants your penny of worship. He wants you to give him all you have of you. Not what you think he wants, but he wants you to give all of you. You say, well, I don't have anything to give. I don't really have anything to offer. That's okay. Because the Bible says, for your ashes, he'll give you beauty. You may only have brokenness today. Don't get so caught up in looking for ceremony that you miss the intimacy that God's trying to offer you today. Don't get so caught up in looking for the perfection of religion that's so full of self-righteousness and fallacy that you miss the essence that God wants to, to heal your withered hand. He wants to heal your broken places. He wants you to get, he wants to come and live in you. He doesn't want you to come to him, but he wants to come to you. You may be today only have broken pieces. You might be sitting there with shattered dreams, shattered relationships, a shattered heart, shattered hope, shattered peace. You may have nothing. But he says, if you give me your ashes, I'll give you beauty. If you give me heaviness, I'll give you a garment of praise. I'll lift you up. If you give me your mourning, not your AM, but your mourning, your sadness, your mourning, your sorrow, I'll give you joy. Can I tell you something today the Pharisees didn't see? That Jesus is not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your heart. Jesus is not here today, and I'm not speaking of religion of perfection where God is trying to look for your perfection to become someone who is able to cross every T and dot every I. God is not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your heart. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. Do you know what? Really, in a lot of sense, because if you go back and you read Hosea chapter 6, 6, where that was originally made, you'll see something that they started participating in the ritual and their heart wasn't in it. God's just looking for your heart today. God's looking for your heart today. He's not looking for anything else. You say, but my heart is so damaged. My heart is so broken. My heart is so shattered. My life is such a mess. There's nothing. And he says, I don't want your perfection. I want your pieces. I don't want all of your accolades. I want all of your failures. I don't want all of the things you got right. Give me all the things you've got wrong. I don't want all of your good days. I'll take all of your bad days. I don't want all of your 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 religious check boxes. Give me all of your sin. That's what I want today. Don't 
Give me what you want to give me. Give me what I want. I want your sin. I want your broken pieces. I want your hurt. I want your disappointment. I want your ugly places. I want your ashes. I want that stuff. Give me the raw, the, the, the rough. Don't give me. Society wants perfection. Society wants a filter. Society wants a Snapchat that makes you look like something you're not. But God says, I want you unfiltered. Give God the unfiltered version of you. He doesn't want the Photoshop version of you. He doesn't want you. Who doesn't like Photoshop? Photoshop can make you look like somebody not. I mean, you're not. He can make, he can make you look good. Make you look thin. It can make you look tan. It can make you look like you can make everything look right where it is. You're not no spots, no blemishes. You got green eyes. You want blue eyes? Boom, Photoshop. You got red hair. You want blue hair? Boom, Photoshop. You're tall. You can make you short. Photoshop. You're 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 large. We can make you skinny. Photoshop. It doesn't matter. Photoshop. But God doesn't want the Photoshop version of you. He wants the raw, unfiltered, stripped down, nothing but you version. Give him that. But if you give him that, he said, if you give me that part of you, I'll give you all of me. He said, you go to that temple every day and you're getting the sacrifices, but there's one sitting here that's greater than the temple because you're offering in the temple ritual and ceremony, but I'm standing here today offering you healing and deliverance and hope and intimacy. I'm here today. I'm not offering you a membership to a church. I'm not talking about a, a, an ability to join a group. I'm talking to you today about the opportunity to connect with the greatest thing you can ever do, and that's connect with Jesus Christ. And I know what lie has been told. Well, I got this problem and I've got this issue and I don't have this and I don't have that. And I don't know this and I've got this and I've done this and I've done that. It's all lies because I'm telling you today, Jesus is wanting you just like you are where you are. If you would just say, God, just say it. Just, just say it. Be honest with God. Say, God, here's the, here's the stripped down, unfiltered version of me today. I don't have anything. I, I've got failures I've got sin, I've got hurt, I've got pain. I don't, I've got so much stuff. But if God, that's what you want, I'll give it to you. But Lord, I give you that because I just want you. I finish with this. One of the senior finance ministers of the country of India was laying on his deathbed in his older years. He had risen to high prominence in society in India society, um, and he had gotten to the place of great prestige, but he had been a devout Hindu all of his life. He's laying on his deathbed, and right when death was approaching, he called his family around. They gathered around, and he said, I want to tell you something. And he looked at him, waiting for these last parting words of wisdom. He said, my entire life has been in quest of being, of, of trying to find the highest performance of humanity. I've tried to adhere to all of the teachings of our religion. I've done everything I can to try to do what I was taught as a child, even up through my entire life. I went to temple. I did my rituals. I did everything I was supposed to do, but I never could find the answer. I could never find the essence of what I was looking for. I never could find what was searching. Could never find it. I spent hours I spent hours probing and looking and questioning spiritual matters, trying to come to the, to the thing that was really the essence. And I've laid in this bed and I've asked myself the most important question. What or who is the way to God? He said, I've searched for this for many years. And he said, I, I'm about to pass from this life. I've gone to temple I've been a Hindu without blame all of my life. But as I lay here, I ask myself one question. Who or what is the way to God? But he said, I'm here to tell you today the all-important answer to the question, 
what is the way and who is the way. And with that anticipation of wisdom, they all gathered closely, his family and his friends, all gathered waiting for him to finally give them the answer. And he looked at each and every one of them and he said to them, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. That was not the answer they were expecting coming from a devout Hindu, coming from a man who had been revered and had been held in high society for so long, becoming the finance minister of the country of India. But his final words to them was, I finally found the answer after all these years. Jesus is the way. Can I tell you today, there is an answer. You don't have to come to the end of your life and be on your deathbed to find that answer. But I tell you today that there is one answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Simple as that. That's it. Simple as that. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. There's an old song that says Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer. It's Jesus. It always has been and always will be as simple as that. Jesus. No temple, no ritual, no ceremony, no set of laws, no set of rules, no set of religious edicts can ever take the place that simply it's Jesus. Father, I've spoken what you've given me to speak today. I've tried not to add to or take from that. And I pray, Father, that the word you have spoken today would find lodging in every heart. Because I believe there are people now that are sitting that are searching for something greater. They're empty. They're hurting. They're, they're frustrated. They've come to a place of, 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 of being so dissatisfied with life, so dissatisfied with where they are. And they've searched for every answer. But finally, God, the true answer is you. You and you alone are the answer. You're the answer. There's so many right now that are listening that are dealing with so many things in their life, so many frustrations, hurt, pain, disappointment. And they're looking for answers. And they're looking for answers in society. They're looking for answers in government. They're looking for answers in entertainment. They're looking for answers in their job, career, whatever it might be, but there is no answer. The only answer is you. You're the answer then, you're the answer now, and you're the answer that will always be. And I pray, Father, today that you would open up our eyes and bind the spirit of blindness that wars against us. You would open up our eyes that we can see through the revelation that you are the answer. You're the answer. You have been, you are, and will always be the answer. Father, today, bring us to the end of ourselves so we can see if all we have is ashes, we give you ashes. If all we have is a penny, we give you a penny. But what we have today, we give to you because you asked for it, so we give it to you. We give you all of us. Even if it's just a pile of pieces, we give it to you today because we want you more than anything. We don't want your temple. We want you. We don't want to look for ceremony. We want relationship with you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today, wherever you've been. Hope to see you tonight seven, at 7.30 on Right at Home. But just understand and know that no matter where you are today, that Jesus is and always... There's power in the name of you. 